Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Thomas Morris will join us to discuss the mystery of the exploding teeth. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Show. Well, the history of medicine is filled with curious stories and cases, including one of exploding teeth. Joining us today to discuss this is Mr. Thomas Morris. Mr. Morris is a writer and medical historian whose first book, The Matter of the Heart, A History of Heart Surgery, was a winner of a Royal Society of Literature Jerwood Award. His recent release, entitled The Mystery of the Exploding Teeth and Other Curiosities from the History of Medicine, explores these stories for a general audience. And uh, Mr. Morris, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grox Science Show. Hi, thanks for having me. An interesting uh, compendium of stories here you, you've collected of, from uh, the history of medicine. How did you come about these stories, and why did you decide to put this book together? Well, you mentioned my previous book, um, The Matter of the Heart, which is about uh, the history of heart surgery. And um, it was really, while I was researching that book, um, this, this sort of came along as kind of light relief. Um, I was spending a lot of time reading old medical journals in libraries, and what I found was that um, every time I looked at one of these articles I was meant to be reading about heart surgery or heart disease, I'd come across some strange tale about um, spontaneously combusting noble women uh, or people who'd had their arms ripped off by a windmill um, or people who'd survived amazing injuries in the American Civil War and strange treatments, all sorts of things. Um, and I discovered that when I started looking through these medical journals seriously, that they were absolutely packed full with these unusual, quirky stories, um, which had been sort of forgotten about. So um, I started collecting them just for fun. Um, and I've now got quite a collection. I've got about 400 of them, which I've uh, collected and written up. And the book contains 60 or 70 of my favorite tales. Is it just that the journals were selective cases that were a little bit unusual? Yes, well, I think you have to remember also why these journals were founded in the first place. Um, and a lot of them came about in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, and it was a time when doctors, I think it was very easy for them to be working in isolation. They might be in a small town in, say, the American Midwest or in the Midlands in England. Um, and they didn't have such easy access to their colleagues to find out what they'd been treating and what they were doing. Um, and so these journals are founded as a way for doctors to share information with each other. And, of course, if you came across something really unusual, it was useful to record that so that you could tell your peers and so that they could learn about novelties. Um, and just so, for instance, if you come across um, a new illness, and to take one example, there's a, um, a disease I, I record from uh, an 18th century case um, where an entire family was suddenly affected by terrible pain in their limbs and um, their extremities started to fall off. They lost their feet and in some cases their hands. And what had happened was they were suffering from ergotism, which um, is a fungus which can affect wheat 
and they'd been eating bread made from this tainted wheat. Um, and the first doctor who ever saw this in, in a case in England, he wrote to a journal because he'd never seen anything like it. Um, and sure enough, somebody else who read this article was able to identify it. So these journals were quite efficient ways uh, for scientists to, to share their, their observations and, and hopefully understand them. How many of these cases do you think then were truly novelties or things that eventually then became uh, easily explainable, modern medicine, modern science, and then and how much of them sort of remain curiosities today? Well, I, I think so the, of the cases I've included in the book, I think the vast majority are absolutely genuine. Uh, there are some where I think the doctor was fooled, um, not necessarily in a case of fraud, but because... Uh, a superstitious patient might believe something had happened when it hadn't really. Um, journals in this period had quite a low bar as far as evidence was concerned. Um, if a doctor said something had happened, that was usually good enough for the editor. So, for instance, there's one Victorian doctor who claimed that he had a patient um, who had had a, an entire family of snails living inside her stomach. Um, uh, this was a patient uh, who was a young girl in London in the 1850s. Um, and a doctor was often prepared in those days to, to believe a patient who said, I've got a snail in my stomach, um, with no further evidence required. Um, so there are quite a number of these cases where the doctor was writing in good faith, but actually the symptoms they observed probably hadn't actually taken place. There's, there's a whole case, uh, there's a whole class of these cases. Um, that they, were, they were also known in folklore as bosom serpents. And these are cases where a, a living um, animal was said to be living inside um, a patient's digestive tract. Um, there are lots of cases of frogs and uh, snakes in particular, sometimes lizards, uh, thought to have been living inside a patient. Now, today we know that's literally impossible. It's scientifically impossible for an animal to survive inside a patient's gut. But because so many patients claimed it had happened, many doctors really believed it. Brings to mind one of the stories you include uh, here about uh, a sailor who had swallowed more than thirty knives. Yes, and in fact, the interesting the interesting thing about that case is that he wasn't believed during his own lifetime. Um, he was a, an American sailor who had been serving um, in France, um, and while he was on shore leave there, he witnessed a stage magician uh, perform a trick which involved pretending to swallow a clasp knife. And the sailors thought this would be a great thing to repeat in front of his friends. Um, and they were sort of cheering him on and asking if he could swallow more than one knife. And he said, he said at one point, yes, I'll swallow all the, all the knives aboard the ship. And um, it wasn't until about 10 years later that he started to fall ill, um, having consumed numerous knives during repetitions of this trick. And when he was taken to hospital and told the doctors what he'd done, they didn't believe him because it just seemed so implausible that a young man could swallow over a dozen knives. Um, and in fact, very sadly, he died. Um, and when the doctors decided to perform an autopsy to find out what actually was wrong with him, they discovered to their amazement that he'd been telling the truth. And they found 39 knives and fragments of knives lodged at various parts of his gut between his stomach and the bottom of his large intestine. Why was it uh, 10 years before it finally did him in? It's a strange, it's a strange thing. And, and um, the doctor who wrote this case for publication suggested, and I think there may be some truth to this, um, that the first few times he swallowed a knife, he got away with it because 
Um, these were class knives. They were sort of retractable pen knives. And it's possible they had passed straight through his, his uh, digestive tract without getting stuck. And a bit later on, uh, one or two of these knives actually lodged in his small intestine, forming an obstruction. And from that point, he was in serious danger because uh, the handles, which were typically made of ivory or wood, they then got eaten away by all the um, uh, stomach acid. Um, and at that point, you've got bare metal uh, with sharp edges. And as soon as that happened, then you can get some quite serious injuries and the knives become lodged. And, and that's that. Uh, that's when he became seriously ill. It is a fascinating tale. I'm curious about the title story here, the uh, the mystery of the exploding teeth. Yes, which I, I unearthed in a, a, a publication called Dental Cosmos. It's a, it's a lovely title, uh, which was in fact the first American journal dedicated to dentistry. And it was contributed by a dentist from Pennsylvania, Springfield, Pennsylvania, called W.H. Atkinson. And it was a patient of his who was a um, priest, a clergyman, who developed suddenly this excruciating toothache. And there's this lovely description of him running up and uh, up and down the, uh, his garden uh, like an enraged animal, howling. And uh, he submerged his head under a waterfall in the hope the cold water would ease his pain. Um, but it wasn't until the following day when this tooth burst with what he describes as um, an audible report. It was like a pistol shot. Um, and suddenly, when this tooth burst, it exploded. Suddenly, his pain had all gone. But the interesting thing is it wasn't an isolated case. There were several, uh, all within the radius of a few miles in Pennsylvania um, over the course of several years. Um, and in one case, um, a woman's tooth exploded so violently that she was deafened for a considerable time afterwards. Um, so well, the interesting question is what was causing these explosions and indeed whether there are explosions at all. And one possible explanation is that the chemicals they used to use in fillings in early dentistry might have been subject to some sort of chemical reaction um, that released hydrogen or another flammable gas. And um, if there was some spark near the mouth of one of these patients, just maybe, just possibly, maybe there, there was a, a, a genuine explosion. Uh, you know, you have a number of very interesting stories here. Were, were there any that uh, you found uh, particularly fascinating or among your favorites? Well, yeah, there, there are a number. I mean, there, there's, a, there's an invention which I think is definitely one that should be better known. It's, uh, it was actually patented um, in, um, in 1854 uh, in, the, in the United States, um, and it's a device called the tapeworm trap. And it is very much constructed along the same lines as a mousetrap, um, it was a metal cylinder uh, made of brass and gold, I think. And the idea was that you would bait it with a piece of cheese. It was attached to a piece of string. And then uh, it was fed down through the mouth, down into your stomach. Um, and the idea was that the, uh, the patient who had a tapeworm would swallow this thing and then sit in a chair in their, in their room, waiting for the tapeworm to take the, take the bait and then you'd haul this thing out of the stomach and you would have caught your tapeworm. Um, so the, the physician who invented this really took it seriously. He thought it was uh, a great invention, but it doesn't seem that anybody ever caught a tapeworm with it. What do you think all these stories tell us really about the, the history of medicine then and how it's evolved from its beginnings to where we are today? Well, one thing I think is very clear is just how quick 
the pace of evolution in medicine was from the, the end of the 19th century. Um, most of these stories come from before the advent of anaesthetics, which um, arrived in medicine with a bang in the late 1840s. And you realize as soon as you read any of these cases, uh, just how uh, blunt an instrument, as it were, surgery was before that date. Um, I think it's important to say, though, that although I have... Um, a good time laughing at some of the ridiculous remedies that doctors use, things like blowing tobacco smoke um, up the bottom of patients if they were drowning, for instance, um, that, that um, you can also see, once you understand the reason for some of the decisions these doctors took, you understood that the treatments they tried, however strange they might, might seem, were completely logical given what they knew or thought they knew about the human body at that time. So um, although there is some humor to be had there, you should also bear in mind that doctors of the 1820s were no less intelligent than today's doctors. It's just they had a very different understanding of how the world works. To, to what extent do you think stories like these still pop up every now and then in medical journals? Well, the funny thing is that they pop up even more. I think they pop up even more regularly now than they used to. Um, it would be, although these journals do tend to be a little more serious uh, than they than they were in the past. Um, actually, human stupidity uh, is still with us. So, for every story I have of uh, a young man who got, you know, um, a part of his anatomy stuck in a candlestick in 1830, you will find just as idiotic things going on in hospitals today. And you only have to talk to anybody who's worked in an emergency room um, for 10 minutes and they'll tell you about half a dozen people who've stuck strange objects in orifices where they weren't meant to go. So um, human nature never changes, even if medicine does. So it's keyed for some stories for some time yet. I think certainly, yes. <laughs> Curious maybe you have some final words regarding your book? Yes, well, well it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, The Mystery of the Exploding Teeth out this week. And um, uh, I mean, I hope there's, there, there's something there for everybody. I mean, some of the stories um, you may need a bit of a strong stomach to, we to read, but others, I think, I hope are quirky and uh, even in some cases kind of poignant and heartwarming. All right. Well, we were just talking to Mr. Thomas Morris. Uh, the new book is entitled The Mystery of the Exploding Teeth and Other Curiosities from the History of Medicine. And Mr. Morris, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you very much for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.